Organizing the Future with Andrew Parry, Episode 5, At the Edge of ESG. At the edge of ESG, can investment strategies achieve real-world environmental and social outcomes? We think they can, but is there a limit? Welcome to Organizing the Future with me, Andrew Parry. I am Head of Investment at J.O. Hambro Capital Management. My guest today is my good friend, Denise Hearn, Senior Fellow at American Economic Liberties Project and co-lead of the Access to Markets Initiative. Denise is co-author of The Myth of Capitalism, Monopolies and the Death of Competition, and author of the Embodied Economics Newsletter, both of which I highly recommend as a great and compelling read. Denise, welcome to Organizing the Future. Thank you so much, Andrew. I love our conversation, so I'm excited. Yeah, and so am I. Let's reprise, reprise what we've done in the past for our, our mm-hmm. listeners today. Denise, you know, when we first met, our conversation focused largely on weak enforcement of antitrust rules and the growth of monopoly power, where I think we're now beginning to see you know, the first signs of changing attitudes in the United States. Since then, however, you've turned your attention to sustainability and have been critical of what you've seen as unrealistic expectations associated with ESG, corporate purpose, and stakeholder capitalism. Given your views on the need for better approaches to managing natural and social capital, this might be viewed as a bit of a contradiction. So let's have a conversation about your thoughts on on these matters, and maybe we can start with private markets for social outcomes, you know, does, you know, why does the current model not work? Yeah, thank you for that great intro and and for the question. And, you know, I've, I've been thinking about this recently because obviously with ESG, we've seen uh, a, a growing chorus of, uh, you know, defectors and critics. And particularly uh, in the U.S., we have conservatives now who are being very aggressive to, you know, say that ESG is woke capitalism and actually instituting legislative changes um, or, you know, uh, filing antitrust uh, suits as an example to say that it's inappropriate for investors to coordinate in this way uh, towards, you know, particular political, uh, what they view as politically skewed agenda um, items, you know, of progressive investors in particular. And so, um, you know, it's it's made me think about that. In in essence, I sort of agree with one of the, the conservative critiques, which is, okay, uh, you know, progressives couldn't couldn't get this through the ballot box. They couldn't uh, they couldn't institute the kind of political changes that they want through the electoral process. And so now they're trying to use private channels to um, to kind of meet these social and environmental goals. And I actually think that that's a cogent critique. I think that that's an interesting critique. Um, and of course, it's it's uh, it's a little bit disingenuous because conservatives over the last, you know, 40 years since the era of Milton Friedman and sort of the neoliberalism agenda have dismantled any kind of countervailing force against the rise of private power and the the rise of concentrated industries. Um, And so they've dismantled, you know, regulatory agencies. They've they've said that the state shouldn't interfere in markets. Markets should be, you know, completely left alone and are sort of untethered from from these social outcomes. And and so in in essence they've they've helped to elevate corporations to this 
um, extremely high level of political influence. And now corporations are the largest political influence in our systems um, and, and, you know, globally. And, and so now they, they can't sort of like have their cake and eat it too, in the sense that um, they sowed the seeds of this outcome. And now they find some of these corporations politically distasteful, or, you know, they're not in agreement with some of the stances that they're taking politically. But what they're identifying, which is that um, so much of life now has become privatized. Markets have uh, seeped into, you know, so many facets of public life that I think the deeper question we should be asking is, what are the limits of markets? You know, I just finished reading uh, the what money can't buy the moral limits to markets and i think it's i think it's a really interesting question what should be marketized what shouldn't and um i think we take for granted that you know we sort of assume now that of course markets are the best way of allocating goods and they're not always. Uh, and so, you know, that sort of gets into the second part of your question about natural social capital. But um, but that, that I think is a key question. How much, how much of our public life do we want to be organized through private channels and who gets to set the terms and norms of the, of those, um, of those private channels? And, you know, investors obviously have a role to play, but it still is, you know, with record, um, shareholder filings last year, it still is a very elite group of people who get to, you know, have their say in terms of what kinds of outcomes they want to see um, through these kinds of mechanisms. So I think, I think there is a, a deep structural question here that I wish that we could focus on instead of doing these sort of political proxy wars um, over corporate governance. It's interesting that uh, a number of my Previous guests have mentioned Friedman in the context of this sort of broader debate on sustainability. But of course, he did say that um, markets had to have boundaries placed upon them by you know, civil society. And I think that's often forgotten because markets without boundaries are not necessarily efficient allocators of capital. In mm -hmm. So in this era where it's very uh, fashionable to be an ESG skeptic, it's also worth stepping back and thinking about some of the statements that, for example, that ESG has caused inflation. I think maybe people we should step back and think has over concentration of corporate power been a mechanism for accelerating inflation as well. So you know, it's quite interesting how you can mm. come at this from different points of view. And if you have markets that end up with deep concentration, guess what? That affords the corporates a lot of pricing power. So. It's, mm -hmm. uh, I think there needs to be a bit more nuance in the debate, but I wanted absolutely. To come, I wanted to come back to a point you you just made, and that's about sustainable systems. And when we were having the prelim to this discussion, there was one phrase that you came up with. You said you were useless at sound bites, but it was a really great. <laughs> it was a great sound bite, and it was that you can't have a sustainable company without a sustainable system. And I wonder if you, you might sort of want to uh, you know, talk a little bit about that, because I think the sustainable systems idea is what we're all trying to achieve, even if you can't always achieve it at the, at the individual specific level. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess where so I think ESG has been incredibly important in terms of laying the groundwork and the, the kind of, 
the the series of questions that we should be asking about how companies should be governed um, and you know what kind of what kind of targets they should be aiming for and and the like so i um I think that ESG as a movement has been, you know, very helpful in 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 many ways to move us towards these global goals. I think where partially it has been unhelpful is taking a process which really was meant to be again a series of inquiries about how we want to organize and govern um, corporations. And then turning that into a rating system to say, okay, this company is, is an ESG company and this company isn't, or this one ranks more highly, you know, here and there. And um, the point I'm trying to make there is that because of the because of the interconnected nature and, and even the emergent nature of our systems and our financial systems, our economic systems, um, there's no way that you can have a sustainable company if if you don't have sustainable systems like functional democracies and intact ecosystems and uh you know because to, to sort of like put it very simply if the world burns tomorrow there's no such thing as a sustainable company <laughs> right in that scenario and so they can only exist within the um the ecological boundaries that we have and um you know the social floor is the sort of donut economics model uh that kate raworth has put forward and um and that you know companies should be of course actively contributing to um to helping us reach that sort of nice layer in the middle of social social floors and, and ecological boundaries um so I guess that's the point I'm making is that, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense to sort of productize this idea that companies sell, you know, sell ETFs and rank companies and say, okay, here's an, you know, here's an ESG company. Uh, we're going to bundle them all together and say that, say that now you've got a sustainable basket because the basket exists within a very complex web of economic systems. And um, without these, without these other you know, sustainable systems, then you just frankly, you can't have sustainable companies. And you can even apply it to net zero if you think that you can't have a net zero company without a net mm -hmm. zero system, because it is. Exactly. The, to use Mark Carney's phrase, it is the tragedy of the commons. It's a shared common interest that we have in, the, in a healthy climate, a healthy environment. I'm surprised at the beginning you didn't pick me up on something, because I know as an author, you have attention to grammatical detail and I use the phrase natural and social capitals and mm -hmm. I know in our previous discussions we, we both I guess felt some unease with the use of referencing you know natural social human as forms of capital because there's a tendency once you you view them as a capital and how do you exploit that capital for financial gain which isn't always Aligned to the interest of uh, natural and social systems, and uh, so, do you think the actual move towards this another popular phrase that's being used, stakeholder capitalism, is helpful or uh, unhelpful in this debate? Yeah, no, I love this question because it is something I've been thinking about, and I do think you know sometimes language can be can feel sort of pedantic like oh you know why are we why are we arguing over over small terms here and there but i do think that language shapes so much of how we view reality it narrative um 
and storytelling and the kind of collective beliefs that we share really do scaffold the world. And so I think it it does matter. And um, yeah, I have a bit of unease with uh, with the term capital. I also have some unease with the, the term assets. Um, and so, you know, sort of natural assets uh, or natural capital. And so something I've been thinking about, and uh, I've done a little bit of early work with Dark Matter Labs, which is based in London on this, um, which is I'm really intrigued by this movement where you're seeing rivers being given rights. Uh, you're seeing bees being given citizenship in Costa Rica. And there's a completely different framing to say these are self-owning, autonomous agents that need to be treated with the same sort of dignity and fundamental rights that we've given to humans. And I think I sort of... I think that this is going to become a much bigger part uh, in the, you know, in the decades to come of how we understand and relate to uh, the natural world, which of course we're fundamentally embedded in and a part of. Um, and so I'm kind of calling it the fifth sector in the sense of, you know, it's going to change how we contract. It's going to change how we think about um, financially interacting with these, these types of agents. And so I like the term agents because it's a, it kind of, to me, connotes that there's agency, that these, um, these are not sort of, uh, the, these are not just sites for us to think about financial extraction, you know, or, um, or to think about them in economic terms, you know, kind of, I, I feel sometimes that the term assets or even capital puts everything under the tyranny of thinking through the lens of, of financialization. And um, I'm, I'm really curious and interested to see what new governance models, what types of legal infrastructure or regulatory infrastructure we can apply to starting in a fundamentally different place where we, we say that actually, you know, these, these agents have a right to their own autonomy and, you know, perhaps lack of interference in some way uh, by, by the kind of predominant systems that we've ascribed to. Well, maybe the United Nations has helped us in that, in that they declared that a healthy environment is a human right. So that's an, an interesting concept that aligns with that. You know, when you were talking, I was thinking about how we can reframe things like education and healthcare within a you know political system because they're often viewed as costs then they're costs mm. to the, the the national purse but they're actually investments in the future and if you frame them as investments in the future then they have they take on a completely different meaning they have a payback that actually benefits you know all of society and i think that is what's something that we can begin to think about natural uh, and social um, agents agents as an mm -hmm. investment in, in the future with a dividend to be paid in the future. If you just view them as costs, then you're, you're, you have a completely different attitude. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, um, I know Rianne Eisler, who wrote The Chalice and, and The Blade, has advocated for, you know, there's many people trying to think of alternatives to GDP, but she's um, she's come up with something called the social economic wealth indicators, I think. And um, what I found interesting <clears throat> about what she proposed is exactly what you're saying, which is you can't just measure um, the outputs. You also can measure the inputs. How much are you actually spending uh, on things like education and housing and things that we've identified, you know, mental health, things that we've identified, uh, which support 
the the flourishing of human life and that that should be seen as as an investment and as um you know as something that measurably contributes to the kind of total uh the total way of measuring the assets that you have or um however you want to frame it but so i thought that was i thought that was interesting it's not just about sort of like factors of production and output it's also about the input and what you're willing to invest in the things that as you've outlined that are important i saw a recent article from one of my former guests um anikit shah at jeffrey's and interesting for somebody in an investment bank to be uh, taking on the degrowth um, debate um, mm -hmm, as part mm -hmm. of sustainable. And I just wonder where you are on that uh, that concept of uh, growth versus degrowth or, you know, and do you think that's a necessary part of the debate? Is that something that we, we need to, to begin to con consider is our patterns and of consumption? You know, we often see you know, consumption like GDP as a sort of economic virility symbol you know, is this, is this part of recalibrating our thinking on the on the economic models that we want to have a more sustainable future? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I'm I'm still getting to know the degrowth kind of point of view, and I don't even know that it's a monolith. I think there are many components to it. I was recently reading. Um, there's an I just ordered a book actually called The Future Is Degrowth. I think, and but there's a, a great economist, Timothy. Karike, I might be totally butchering his last name, but he did a um, he did a fantastic summary of the book, and he talks about um, how you know the de basically the sort of degrowth economists for the last twenty years have been um, putting together scaffolding, putting together a mosaic of um, many different critiques uh, of our system. And it's not just simply the sort of growth, degrowth, there, there's a lot of components to it. Um, and, you know, when I think about this question, I think that there's, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of things to unearth there, even the term growth, we sort of take for granted what, you know, what, what is growth? What does it mean? And I think we can distinguish between their sort of material and physical growth, um, which we know in natural systems, there's something called the square cube law, which means that you can only grow to a certain, uh, to, to a certain size uh, before you become structurally unsound. So that's why it's also, you know, hard to build taller and taller buildings just because there are certain laws of physics and nature that make it, you know, make it dif difficult to continue materially growing or, you know, why you can't, um, an elephant can only be a certain size and um, and the like. And so there's there's physical elements to it. There's developmental aspects to it. You know, just because a human stops physically growing, it doesn't mean that they stop developmentally growing um, and, and many other things. And so I think when we say the term growth, uh, we have, again, we have one lens through which we've tended to define that. Um, which is, of course, the out, you know, output and GDP. And I think that there's a lot of room to redefine what growth means and looks like. Um, and and I do think that, you know, some of that being perhaps materially constraining <laughs> our consumption is important. Uh, but I think that there's many other things that will be additive, right? It's not just about sort of taking away. It's about um, it's about redefining what growth means to us. And I think Mariana Mazzucato has a great 
quote where she says, um, growth doesn't just have a rate, it has a direction, you know, and in what direction are we growing? So I think, um, yeah, I'm, as I said, I'm still sort of exploring the arguments there, but I think that there's a lot of richness to some of the critiques that the degrowth economists have brought to the discussion. I think it also has a, another dimension and that's quality. It's not just about quantity. The quality of growth mm -hmm. is also something that I think will be part of that debate. And even in a sort of degrowth system, that doesn't mean that parts of it can't grow, that there can't be attractive returns and rewards for actually contributing to the degrowth. You think of Japan, Japan, for example, GDP hasn't really gone anywhere, but GDP per capita has been quite healthy. You know, there's a quality over mm. quantity argument. And I think your, your reframing uh, point is very well made. I, I remember in Embedded Economics, you wrote a very interesting blog on profit and how our our view of profit was unstable. It had not been, we viewed it differently over the centuries. And just So that in some ways I was sort of asking that question on growth, mm -hmm. it, almost in that context. If, you know, I just wonder whether you might have a quick reprise of how you've thought about profit uh, in its different forms over the uh, over time. Sure, yeah. Um, I did just actually want to, to say one more thing about growth, if that's okay. Yeah, um, and I'm I'm trying to um, I'm trying to actually write a, a, another blog about this because I'm trying to sort out my views on it. But I wanted to add two more things uh, that have been on my mind as it as it relates to growth. One is that um, you know I'm really interested. There's there's a, a there's a, a biologist out of MIT named Jeremy England, and he came up with a theory of evolution. Um, called dissipation-driven adaptation, because it's very strange in the world that we live in, which obeys the laws of thermodynamics and entropy that we have increasing complexity in our systems. And so how do those two things relate? And his theory basically says that you have um, things like a snowflake or even, even human beings that we develop higher and higher levels of complexity in order to sort of dissipate energy more efficiently and that those those two things work in concert. And so I think that you know, be, because we have these complex adaptive systems, we will always be getting higher and higher orders of complexity um, in, to some degree. And I think that that is a form of growth, but it also creates this more you know efficient energy distribution. And so... Um, what the problem that we have in our current financial systems is that uh, although we have increasing complexity, there's kind of a staleness, you know, there's a concentration of, of capital, there's a concentration of wealth. I don't think we fully understand what financial systems or economic systems are actually trying to dissipate. Um, but certainly if we think that it's money there, you know, we've seen declining velocity of money. Um, I think in some ways we were, we're sort of already in post-growth, um, you know, where, and I was reading, Peter Thiel recently kind of said this too, where he says, you know, we think that we have, uh, that we've been growing, but actually a lot of it is just kind of accounting tricks, financial engineering. And I completely agree with that. So I think in some ways, um, in some ways, we're already in post-growth or degrowth, particularly in Western uh, Western economies. And, you know, now we've got stagflation and all of this. So, um, yeah, anyway, so I'm exploring that. I'm kind of interested. And if any listeners, you know, uh, want to talk about it, I'd be very curious to hear their, their views. Um, 
but on the on the profit question, yeah, I should um I should pull up my blog so I remembered what I actually said. <laughs> but well, I wanted to Well, why do you do um, you do that? I was I was just, you know, thinking as you were talking about this sort of uh, the post-growth world that we might be entering, then that almost implies a different way that we will have to think about profit in a post-growth mm. world. And and that's mm -hmm. that's what resonated when you were talking with that previous comments on how we had seen profit in through different lenses in different you know, ages. And it was that that resonated with me. And it certainly fits with our thinking that we are entering a, a new phase for markets, not so much at the, the total market return level, but in the leadership and the components and the you know, the business model paradigm that is going to to emerge from this tumultuous period, and we're not sure when it's going to end and what's going to come next, but it really does feel as if we are in one of those generational shifts in market behavior and appetite and maybe the degrowth, post-growth, changing the way that we think about profit is going to be one of those um, those consequences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and I, I wanted to pull this up because there was a fantastic academic paper that I read and I wanted to make sure that I um, named Jonathan Levy, who's at the University of Chicago, who has a fantastic paper called Accounting for Profit and the History of Capital, which is where um, I, I drew from quite a bit for this, this post. Um, but what originally inspired it was, you know, I tend to see on LinkedIn or elsewhere people, particularly in the impact investing community or ESG community say, you know, people plus, uh, plus planet plus profit equals impact or some, you know, some variation of that. And it, it got me thinking, you know, what is profit? And where does it come from? And um, and what was interesting is that Levy talks about how there's been four distinct profit regimes in U.S. history. And actually, again, our conception of profit has radically changed over time. And, you know, if you read David Graeber, who talks about debt in the first 5,000 years of economic history, um, you know, the, the concept of profit really didn't exist for most of human history. It's, it's relatively new in, in, in our kind of human and commercial history uh, because most, most early societies related through the concept of debt and um, indebtedness to one another. You know, most human beings have been told that they're debtors at some point um, and wealth was, was held in sort of long range assets like land or political militaristic power. So profit wasn't really a relevant concept. Um, and even when you had the first global mega corporations like British East India Company, uh, they, they, it was more about sort of amassing political power through, um, you know, through the, the monopolization and the colonization um, of empire expansion. So the goal wasn't profit per se. Um, and then what was interesting is sort of, you know, that even in the U.S. prior to the mid 1800s or 1850, many firms didn't even track profits. It was more of a uh, balance of incoming and outgoing goods, and um, they wanted to, you know, essentially just make sure that they had some sort of surplus at the end of of the year. Uh, but profit, again, they didn't measure profit in the same way that we do today, um, and then. You know, when you get the in the era of industrialization, 
then profit becomes uh, a factor of cost reduction. And so you see, this is where you've got the the Gilded Age uh, robber barons, you know, having child labor in the factories and things because they wanted to reduce their their input costs as much as possible. And then whatever profits they generated, they would sort of reinvest in expanding the business such that they could develop these uh, monopoly businesses. Um, and so anyway, so you know, the, the concept of profit has changed quite a bit. And then when we get to today, what I think is interesting is now <laughs> profit uh, is in many ways, it is sort of moving assets around on the ballot balance sheet, right? We saw in, I think, 2020 or 2021 that Tesla actually made more money selling regulatory credits in Bitcoin than it did selling cars. Uh, and we know that, you know, many firms employ dozens and dozens of shell companies where they're doing transfer pricing between their many entities or they're doing, you know, tax avoidance strategies and various things, um, stock buybacks, all these different ways of financially engineering what look like profits, but increasingly they're not necessarily coming from the things that we would associate with profits, um, you know, invest reinvestment in the company, you know, uh, getting more consumers, et cetera. Like profits can come from many places and sometimes they can come from good places. You actually create an innovative product that people want to buy or a service. Um, but they can also come from, you know, rent seeking can come from squeezing your labor, for your suppliers. Um, and sorry, I, now I'm, I'm monologuing, but the last thing I'll say is that, uh, you know, Amazon now makes more money. This is amazing, okay? Amazon makes more money from fees that it imposes on, it, on its third-party suppliers than it does from any other part of its business, um, including AWS. So, and because they are losing, you know, last uh, last quarter or last year, they, they I think they had their first um, non-profitable quarter, if I'm remembering properly. They've just over the weekend reinstituted another another fine on suppliers. They already did one a few months ago uh, that they called a fuel in surcharge because of inflation, which was 5%. And now they're doing another fee. So, you know, because of the market power that they have, they're they're now essentially just extracting from their third-party suppliers. So profits can come from many places. We've redefined it multiple times over history. And I do think that it is time to have a reset in terms of how we understand profits. And it really bugs me when people do the win-win narrative of like profit and impact could go hand in hand because profit is a very complex um, concept. And like I mentioned, it can come from many places, some of which are not very good. Yes, I, I, I do remind my guests before we start that we, we they're not allowed to say there are win-win scenarios, that there are always complex and challenging trade-offs. But that concentration of power issue, and, you know, it's, it's broader than one particular company. It's been a business model of the last 15 years, probably the most successful new business paradigm, and that's the platform company, which is about the intermediation between the producer of goods and the consumer of goods. And, mm -hmm. and and that's you know that is quite been quite a fa fascinating phenomenon. Phenomenon. Uh, it's obviously probably been facilitated by ultra low interest rates and abundant liquidity as well, which again mm -hmm. is why I, th I do get that feeling that there are the winds are changing and that the leadership in the market is going to change. What what's different and uh, you know what's going to be leading us out is not yet certain, but it does feel that inflation 
a higher cost of capital, something that a generation of investors have almost not experienced, could very mm-hmm. well be so the seed for that change in the new you know, the new leadership. So, um, you know, concentration of power is back to where we, we first started our, our conversation. And, and it is interesting to see both the left and the right beginning to realise that, you know, concentration monopoly aren't actually healthy for innovation and well-functioning systems over the long term. So, you know, it's interesting. It's, mm-hmm. not, it's not a political observation. It it's actually becomes a, an economic dysfunction. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and you know what, Andrew, I have to say, though, I think I've found a rare instance of a win-win. Oh, dear, I might have to edit that. <laughs> um, so I have, a, I have an op-ed coming out tomorrow in Fortune, which is actually corporate breakups. Okay, so what I find interesting is that when antitrust enforcers want to do a corporate breakup, everyone goes, oh, that's a nuclear option. It's horrible. I can't believe, you know, it's, we can't unscramble the omelet. It's too complicated, blah, blah, blah. But corporations break themselves up all the time. They do divestitures, spinoffs, et cetera. And uh, so, you know, activist investors and CEOs are very willing to employ breakups for their own commercial strategies. And they recognize that sometimes it actually is more profitable for the company to split itself into parts than it is to remain, you know, a giant, uh, you know, monolith. Um, And so I think that, you know, as the FTC pursues a more, in the U.S., pursues a more aggressive stance to take on big tech, I think that uh, they align themselves with capitalists the world over, you know, in uh, in potentially not only creating better outcomes for consumers and workers, but also creating better outcomes for investors. Because when, um, you know, there's a great story about when Standard Oil was getting broken up, that uh, Rockefeller was on the golf course when he heard the news and he said, buy Standard Oil because he knew that it would be worth much more in parts than it was together. And that was true. So um, I think I found the win-win and it's it's corporate breakups. <laughs> well, the funny thing is it takes me back to nearer the start of my mm, almost 40 years in the investment industry in the early 90s when we did have a paradigm shift in business models. And it was interesting that a a lot of the losers were the former conglomerates, you know, the the companies, the roll-up companies. And as they, the ones that failed, didn't innovate, didn't restructure, didn't split up. The ones that often Mm -hmm. split up and spun out, it became quite a well-known investment uh, maxim that, you know, buy the spin-out because that will be the inefficiently priced attractive asset, which will now be remotivated to actually mm. improve shareholder outcomes. So, you know, it's not new. It's something that we've forgotten about in a world where getting bigger and uh, agglomerating um, for, for size's sake became the dominant model. So maybe you've hit on mm-hmm. a hint of where the uh, the new model is going to be that leads us out of this. I hope so. <laughs> um, but yeah, it just reminded me too that we're, you know, it's interesting we, I have another paper coming out soon on uh, on roll-ups and kind of serial acquisitions at very early stages or with small companies. And, you know, private equity, of course, uh, employs a strategy all the time for specific industries. But you're also seeing now, you know, public companies do it and, um, and also startups raising capital to roll up industries that, you know, you've got a number of startups uh, like rolling up 
third party sellers on Amazon, as an example. Uh, and what's interesting about this strategy is that most of the most of the acquisitions fall under the the antitrust filing thresholds because they're too small. So they under a hundred million basically. Uh, so they don't get filed with the agencies, but you can, you can concentrate quite a bit of economic power before you would ever have to report anything to the, to the FTC. Um, and so we're, we, we sort of, you know, talk about how this is a bit of a problem uh, of course, but because that's, that's our angle, but I, I do think it's interesting the role that, um, you know, private equity is playing and also, now, you know, back to the kind of financial engineering point, which is interesting is I've, you know, just recently learned about continuation funds and you have <laughs> private equity companies, you know, selling companies that they own to themselves into the next fund to sort of boost their, boost their return profiles and their IRR. And uh, you just have to say like, does any of this make any sense anymore? I don't know. It just seems so bizarre. I did mention at the beginning that uh, monopolization can can lead to inflation. And one of my favorite or probably least favorite examples, as I am a dog lover and dog owner, is the uh, acquisition of vets by private equity in Britain. I think more than 20 percent of vets in Britain are now owned by private equity. And uh, a friend who had to take their cat in for a scan that it's probably three times the cost to get your cat scanned than to have a scan yourself in using private uh, healthcare in, in the UK for a human. And I'm a heck of a lot bigger than a cat. So, wow. So, you know, mm. the there are some very real world outcomes. You know, some of the vet bills are quite terrifying. Um, mm. Goodness, my, my vet remains a private practice that has has uh, avoided the lure of, uh, you know, of, uh, of the buyout. Mm-hmm. Now, Denise, as you know, we get to the end, and unfortunately, all good things do have to come to an end, and I'm, I'll have to wrap up. But one of the things I always ask my guests, and you know, is quickly yeah, a bull and bear question using a very sort of uh, traditional stock market language. But what's one thing that you're optimistic about, and one thing that you're pessimistic about? And this is not about financial forecasts. This is going to be, you know, frankly. Anything it could be the weather in Seattle, which, uh... <laughs> which is very lovely right now. Actually, um, the thing I'm optimistic about right now is all of the experimentation that's happening with forms of participatory democracy, so citizens' assemblies and sort of mini publics, uh, where you gather 50 to 100 citizens that are representative and get them to deliberate on. Uh, public policy, you can bring in experts. And um, the I know that in Ireland, they've used Citizens' Assembly to get past, you know, long stalemates on abortion legislation, as an example, uh, which is highly controversial and highly, um, you know, personal for many people. And so I think that there's, you know, maybe to circle back all the way to be the beginning of our conversation, where we're talking about making public decisions through private channels, you know, I think that there's a real need to have 
to have people exercising, you know, small d democracy again, where we feel a sense of agency over our lives and that there's many forms that that can take. People are experimenting with, you know, DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations and digital communities. And I think that it's exciting to see that because we've almost over relied on electoral politics, which, you know, can be in the U.S. anyways, much too binary and, um, you know, kind of bringing some of these decisions back locally and, and giving people a chance to participate in public life, I think is really exciting. So that's, um, I'm curious and interested to see that movement continue to grow. Um, and then what am I bearish on? Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we should have done this in the opposite direction, so it's yeah. more hopeful. <laughs> um, oh, I don't know. I mean... What did I read recently? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, the the uh, when I was reading Moral Limits to Markets, and I found out about the insurance company. I, I found out about companies buying life insurance on their employees without their knowledge, so that they could cash in when they died. Um, and that was really depressing. Just like wow. And you know, of course, th that's old news now, and they're all bundled into they've been securitized and. But, uh, you know, sometimes it feels like the more layers you peel back on on financial systems, the just, you know, the worse and worse it gets. <laughs> well, that's why we did, you know, we, we discussed in the middle of this conversation about the, the danger of referring to human, social and natural capital, because somebody will mm -hmm. seek to, to exploit that. Mm -hmm. Denise, thank you very much for your time. As always, it's been a, a delightful conversation. And of course, thank you to our listeners. If you'd like to learn more about investment opportunities at Joe Hambro, please do contact your representatives. Details about us, our funds, and our approach to investment are on our website. Just search for Joe Hambro in your favorite browser. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.